0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry and I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And uh, kind of, we're doing this topic today because we've gotten several uh, requests to do some South American history. We've gotten so many, and can we can we
0: talk for a second about why we have not had a ton of them? Yeah, much of the information is in languages that neither of us read fluently. Yeah, and so it makes me really sad because I'll find some awesome, awesome historical figure from South American history, and I'll, I'll be able to find like a short encyclopedia article in English, and then anything more substantive is in Spanish or Portuguese or another language that I sadly do not read well enough to use as a history source on this podcast.
1: Yeah, that's a general trickiness in multiple areas. I mean, there are a lot of... Um, there's a lot of African history I would love to cover that it's a little bit hard to find source material. That... Or if
0: we do find source material, it's deeply biased in the favor of yeah. whoever was colonizing.
1: Yeah, so that's sort of why sometimes these don't get as much play as we would like. But luckily, today's topic has been studied by so many people that there is loads of information out there. Hooray! Uh, and that is uh, the Nazca Lines. So to give it some context... About 200 miles southeast of Lima, Peru, uh, nestled right between the Andes Mountains and the Pacific Ocean, there are these huge lines etched into the desert. When I say lines, that's not really entirely accurate in terms of characterization. You've probably seen photos of these before, but if you haven't, they're really, really astonishing. We're talking about large scale designs uh, and some of them are things you would recognize like a monkey or a spider or a condor. There's a hummingbird. Others are geometric. And because they're etched into rock and have survived thousands of years, this was clearly like a serious amount of work that went into cr- the creation of these.
0: The environment in this part of the world has really helped preserve the work of the Nazca. It's a really arid climate and there's not a lot of erosion which means that even tracks from chariots that were left in the 16th century by warring conquistador factions are all still visible in some places.
1: Yeah, there are, like, uh, tire tracks from the 1920s in that area that you can still clearly see. Footprints last for hundreds of years. Uh, it's unusual because it is close to the ocean, yet it is very, very dry. Uh, and for decades, these designs caused a lot of head-scratching Because we didn't understand why a culture would devote so much energy to creating art that we thought they couldn't really see themselves. Because these are so expansive. And we'll talk a little bit about their size in a moment that, you know, it seems you'd only see them from the air. Right. A lot of the photos of them that exist were taken from,
0: from aircraft.
1: Yeah. I mean, they've been featured in like coffee table books of like aerial archaeology, uh, and it is hard to imagine how they would ever look like anything from ground level. But uh, scientists and researchers are continuing to uncover new information about these pieces of landscape art. Uh, we're learning more all the time. The picture keeps getting fuller. And there's still a good bit of theory in the mix, though. Like, we think we've figured out what these lines might be about. Or some researchers think they've figured it out. There have been warring opinions on this, but... Uh, But there's no, you know, final, oh, it's all been made clear by this discovery.
0: And as a note, there is a modern day town of Nazca, which has a population of about 30,000 people. But for this discussion, when we use the word Nazca, we're referring to the ancient culture or the location of the glyphs. Right.
1: Uh, So as I said before, the Nazca region, one of the driest places on Earth, it often goes more than a year without rain. Uh, And the Pampa, the Nazca Desert, sometimes it, it will get like a rainfall of 12 minutes a year. So very, very little moisture going on. The Nazca culture, which predates the Incans,
0: was in its flourish phase between 200 and 600.
1: And there are, to these lines, more than 800 straight lines. There are more than 300 geometric figures uh, and roughly 70 animal or plant designs. The
0: whole collection of drawings spans a huge area. Some of the geometric shapes are more than six miles across, and some of the straight lines are 30 miles long. Altogether, the area that the shapes span is nearly 500 square kilometers
1: or 190 square miles. And just as a note on the 30 miles long one, I have heard differing or read differing statements about the longest line. Some list it as low as nine, some go as high as 30. Uh, I think there are probably some that maybe have petered out and it's hard to discern for certain. So some are attributing length that may or may not be attributed by other people, depending on if it's faded, if it's, uh, you know, maybe it was one of the lines, maybe it was part of the natural landscape. So just know that going in. Uh, And researchers believe that all of the designs were created using the same methodology. So basically using wooden spades to kind of shave or carve off the top layer of the rock and expose the lighter sediment beneath.
0: Some of the drawings are actually carved on top of older ones. So there was clearly a long-term tradition of making these glyphs. Um, And that tradition might have evolved over time. The age of the drawings and even the age of the culture have been debated, and the dates revised as people keep analyzing all the evidence. It'll probably be even further revised as time goes on, but a number that you'll see pretty often in the research is that the lines date back 2,500 years, although some newer data suggest that at least some of them are even older than that. The UNESCO listing for the site gives the date range of between 500 BCE to 500 CE.
1: And the designs are grouped into two types. There are, um, geoglyphs and biomorphs. And the geoglyphs are geometric shapes, uh, and the biomorphs, as you may have guessed, feature animal or human shapes. Uh, in addition to the ones that I mentioned earlier, there's also a hummingbird, there's a fish, a flamingo, an iguana, a fox, a whale, and even others. Uh, but just to keep it confusing, often when you're looking at research, the whole group is often lumped under the geoglyph name rather than separating out into those two separate of geoglyph and biomorph.
0: Though there was some archaeological work being done in Nazca in the late 1920s by a Peruvian archaeologist who spotted some of the designs while hiking in the nearby foothills, the lines weren't really known of outside the area until a commercial pilot spotted them in the thirties.
1: And sometimes uh that date is another one that uh is a little fuzzy in resources that you'll read. Some will list it as late twenties, others uh in the early thirties. Uh but once the impressive geoglyphs were known to the outside world, almost immediately, of course, people were trying to figure out what they were about. Some uh posited that they were ink and roads. Some suggested that they were irrigation lines. Uh, the nearby Cerro Blanco Mountain, which is technically actually a sand dune, but it's like the largest sand dune in the world, I think, or ranks up there, uh, is the primary water source for the area because of an underground reservoir. And at least one of the triangular geoglyphs runs along the water veins that are in that mountain. Uh, Another favorite.
0: As is always a favorite
1: for everything cool. It comes up in every piece of sort of difficult to explain or we haven't done the research that finds the key yet. Mm -hmm. Aliens. Aliens. They're alien landing strips.
0: It's mostly popular in the 1960s. (laughs) Also not particularly surprising. Uh, it was perpetuated mostly by Eric von Daniken, who has made a career as an author specializing in writing about alien interaction with humans, especially in early cultures.
1: Uh, yeah, Daniken actually really uh, angered one of the people who really dedicated their lives to studying this with his theories. Uh, and then others have applied the concept that they have religious meaning. And there are variations on this one, uh, that the lines are paths to rituals or that they're messages to the gods, etc.,
0: American Paul Kozak, who was a professor of history at Long Island University, is often credited with being the first person to seriously study these lines. His interest was really irrigation, and it was the theory that the lines could have been complex water routing ditches that led him to Peru. But he almost immediately realized that the lines were just too shallow to carry water. On June twenty second, 1941, he saw that the straight line he was standing near pointed directly at the setting sun. And he believed that it was a marker for the winter solstice.
1: In the meantime, uh, a young woman named Maria Reika, who was a mathematician from Dresden, Germany, uh, and spoke five languages, also started analyzing and mapping the drawings in 1941. Uh, and she came to that... Because she had actually gone to South America initially to tutor a diplomat's children, but then started working as a translator in Lima. And it was through her translation work that she actually met Paul Kozak uh, in Lima. And the professor really became a mentor to Rika. And once she learned of the lines, it, it was kind of I don't I don't wanna over romanticize it and say it was a love at first sight thing, but she pretty quickly just decided that was her life's work. Uh she really did devote the rest of her life to them. And she even lived in a small desert house near the Nazca lines to serve as their protector. So even though it's this huge expanse, this one woman kind of out there in the desert living by herself really felt like she had to keep a watch on everything. And she became known as the lady of the lines. And she actually, um, as I said, she lived out her life there. She became a Peruvian citizen in 1994 at the age of 91, uh, and was very highly regarded, uh, I think, by the Peruvian people and by the government. Uh, but her work with Cossack really, in that early stage, really formed the basis for the rest of her analysis.
0: Right. While working with him six months after this winter solstice revelation, she discovered a line that pointed to the sun during the summer solstice. This led Cossack to believe that they had uncovered a celestial calendar and he... Characterize the Nazca Lines as the world's largest astronomy book. This really reminds me of Stonehenge and how if you stand in certain places in Stonehenge, you see specific, they line up with specific astronomical events. Yeah, well, it's much bigger. It's much, much, much bigger than Stonehenge, <laughs> but similarly
1: mysterious. Yeah. Uh... And in 1948, Cossack left Peru. It was not his life's work, even though he loved it. Uh, but Maria stayed and she continued working. And she was really attempting to find a pattern or a system to all of the drawings. And she spent more than 40 years mapping the area. And as part of her work, she even painstakingly restored portions of the glyphs that had been obscured over time. Some of them had accumulated dust or debris or the... uh the layers that had been exposed had darkened from sunlight exposure or other elemental exposure, and she would pull those away, never altering the glyphs, but just, you know, a little tidying and restoration.
0: She believed that these drawings were tracking the sun's path and position in the sky, uh, and that the Nazca were using their knowledge of equinoxes to schedule when they should plant and harvest their crops. She also theorized that some of the glyphs were symbols correlated to the constellations.
1: And Rika, working, at, you know, as a woman, solo, analyzing these phenomena, uh, she was not taken seriously. And she initially published her findings in the uh, late 40s, shortly after Kozak left. Um, and she her writings were pretty much met with ridicule.
0: Yeah, competing theorists all pointed out. The vast majority of the lines in the glyphs did not point to any celestial bodies.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of criticism that she had, you know, found. She had kind of cherry picked a few things that lined up with her idea. And then the things that didn't line up with, she wasn't really um, worried about or working into the bigger theory. But uh, just before Rika died in 1998, one of her protégés... Uh, who was a senior astronomer at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago at the time, named Phyllis B. Petluga, uh, she actually came to the conclusion that the bioglyphs were referring to the heavens. She uh, concluded that they aren't representing constellations, but counter-constellations. So sort of the irregular-shaped dark patches within the Milky Way that you can see at night, like the, the negative space between the stars. I love that. I do too. Uh, I looked around for a little more research on it and didn't find a whole lot, but that's one that I would like to delve further into because it's kind of cool and fascinating. But that's one of those things that I worry, uh, and I'm certainly not, uh, an astronomer. I worry that that might be, again, one of those things that it's easy to make work. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, there are so many stars in the night sky that it would be easy to, like, if you rotate it a little, everything kind of fits. Or, right again, I'm just postulating and I haven't looked at her research.
0: Well, and because the North Pole gradually moves over time, the constellations are all in a slightly different place over time. Yeah. Which also makes it a well,
1: little challenging. Tricky. Yeah. But Uh, that's a really neat concept.
0: Now that we have all kinds of fancy computers that can adjust (laughs) for those kinds of things, it's a little easier. But still, it can be tricky that way. In 1997, there was a big Peruvian-German research collaboration that started near the town of Palpa. And it has continued to study all the lines through the years since.
1: Uh, archaeologist Dr. Marcus Reindel of the German Archaeological Institute uh still leads a team, uh, but he started in the late 1990s and early 2000s with the intent to take an in-depth look at the Peruvian Nazca lines. And their approach to the lines was not so much starting with the lines and trying to discern their meaning but instead, they really wanted to dig into the culture of the ancient Nazca to try to contextualize the Nazca lines and give a better basis for understanding their purpose. Uh, so it definitely took a deeper archaeological uh, investigation at that point. I love that, too. I do, too. Oh, they did some really cool stuff.
0: Because of grave robbers, the whole
1: desert around
0: this area is littered with all kinds of broken pottery and skeletons. Basically a big mess, as people have plundered Nazca burial grounds. But 80 years ago, a number of intact mummies from the Nazca land were rescued and preserved.
1: Yeah, they had been just sitting in a museum. Uh, but Reindell's research team decided that they wanted to use modern technology to try to analyze those mummies as part of their kind of mission to do more of a cultural analysis. Uh, and one of the things that was interesting is that this, uh, their analyses revealed dietary differences between some of the mummies. Some were getting more animal protein and varied diets. Uh, and around the same time that these were going on, uh, another part of the team found a burial shaft for a person who obviously had kind of a higher social standing. It was adorned with a uh, personal shrine. And these two pieces together, the variation in diets and the fact that they had found this shrine that clearly was different from previous uh, burial sites, kind of locked together to lead researchers to believe that there was, in fact, a social class system at play uh, in the Nazca culture.
0: This is actually a pretty significant finding. It may seem like, well, duh, every culture has a class system and a social hierarchy. But for a long time, people had believed that the ancient Nazca were a peaceful tribe that didn't have that kind of structure. So there's a famous ceramic tableau called the Teo Plaque, which features multiple Nazca playing panpipes, walking with dogs, and it was long held as this iconic representation of a relaxed tribal life without much of a class system.
1: Yeah, we, uh, you know, I think, <laughs> to put it in casual terms. I think people sort of thought of them as more like a the hippies of history. (laughs) They were just all cool with each other. Chilling
0: out, being groovy. Enjoying the land.
1: (laughs) So there were then some theories, now that they had established that there did appear to be a class system, that the Nazca lines might have been uh, commanded to be made by high-ranking Nazcans to mark their territory or show their prestige.
0: Geoelectric tomography, which measures the electrical conductivity in the Earth was then used to try to find any undiscovered buildings or other structures that might inform this whole idea of a more socially stratified culture. The researchers did find other structures, and they pieced together that with other discoveries and eventually assembled a pretty compelling model of how the Nazca were actually running a pretty successful trade empire, linking settlements and trade spots like beads on a necklace.
1: Yeah, at the time, uh, it, and I, I should say that the findings here were really expansive and they could easily be their own episode. Uh, but they sort of discovered that they could have traveled along what is now a dry portion of the river that was leading out to the ocean and that they had all of these small settlements, you know, dotting along the way so that they could go a little trade rest, go a little trade rest. Uh, and uh, there were, again, in those findings that we're not going to dig deep into, but I at least want to acknowledge them. They found some evidence that some of the glyphs and the structures that we've historically attributed to the Nazca were actually pre-Nazca, and they trace it all the way back to like the migration down into South America. Uh, but for the scope of this one, we're gonna keep it simple with regard to the trade culture and that sort of, uh, other branch of the plot line of the Nazca and focus back on the lines. So perhaps in the future we will do another one entirely on that because there's some cool stuff involving links to uh, the Neolithic age that had not ever happened before. It's really, really fascinating research. As we've said
0: already, we're talking about one of the driest places on the planet. But in one small basin, which is the area where the Nazca culture is said to have flourished, There were at one point at least 10 rivers which descended from the Andes. Stephen S. Hall, writing for National Geographic, described them uh, pretty poetically as fragile ribbons of green surrounded by a thousand shades of brown. So most of these rivers would have each been dry for at least part of the year. This nexus point offered up this perfect fertile ground to support a settlement. It also came with a really high risk because the microclimate in that particular spot is really unstable. Any kind of small change, like a high-pressure system moving through, can completely dry out the Nazca Valley.
1: Yeah, because of the way the Andes rings the area, it's easy for um, some weather to get cut off by mm-hmm. a system moving over it, et cetera. Uh But at one point, it really would have been an oasis, uh, similar to other Famous spots in terms of like civilization development, which are often an oasis, you know, kind of up against a desert. Uh, and in this oasis, we know that the Nazca grew citrus, they grew grain, they grew maize, they had a really impressive well structure to bring water to all these crops, and a business built around trading some of the crops because they were so abundant.
0: So in 2007, German geographers took samples from the Andean highlands where there's a climate archive. This is basically the core drill that that we see a lot of times when we're studying long-ago facets of the Earth. So the drill core revealed to the researchers loam and even a snail. So there's proof that there was once a lot more moisture in the area.
1: Yeah, the permafrost there had really preserved things for quite some time, so they were able to get a really deep sample. Uh, so between then and now, when it's known for its dry climate, we know that the water had to have left the region. And this, in the minds of many researchers, is really the key to understanding the Nazca Lines.
0: As more and more excavations have been done, there's been the same imagery that's popped up over and over on everything from everyday tools to sacred objects some of which have been identified as likely weather deities. They look just like the earliest rock carvings, which are mostly on the hills surrounding the area, sort of like protectors.
1: So as these researchers theorize, more and more droughts were happening, and the desert was advancing progressively into the Nazca Plateau, and really spelled out the beginning of the end for the Nazca. And the Nazca, believing that they had somehow failed the gods, really stepped up their religious rituals, including their glyph-making.
0: Many of the animals that are featured in the biomorphs don't really live near the Nazca. They are found more in rainforests on the other side of the Andes. So the current theory is that these figures are fertility prayers of a sort. Asking the gods for the plenty of their neighbors, including water.
1: Yeah, there aren't monkeys there, but there is a monkey glyph. There aren't, certainly aren't whales there, but there is a whale glyph. Uh, some of the birds and other animals that they feature do not exist there, but again, right over the Andes in the rainforest, they're plentiful. So it does make some sense, certainly, that they would be like, we would like what the neighbors have, please. Uh, but the geometric sites, researchers think, are likely actually ritual sites. And there is a very cool project that was done, uh, where they put together a computer graphics model of the entire area and they developed it with information that the researchers had provided regarding, uh, ruins and settlement structures of the time. So it's a pretty comprehensive model of what would have been there. And in this, uh, uh, CG version of the Nazca area, it shows that, in fact, people could have seen the glyphs from many of the buildings in the region. Like, they weren't necessarily tall, but they still would have had a better line of sight. Uh, and this is a pretty significant break from the previous thinking that we talked about earlier that they were only visible from the sky. So that is, you know, a mistaken belief that has probably led many researchers down the wrong path. Like, um process of thought that, oh, nobody could see these. Why were they making them and how? They probably could actually see some of them. What's interesting about
0: the geometric designs is that they're all walkable. They are mostly on the plateau. And this, plus the revelation that you could see the glyphs from around the area, have led researchers to theorize that there were huge ritual spectacles that could be performed there. It would be sort of like putting on a show for everyone to see, including the gods. Yeah, so
1: kind of um, religious theatricality. And it could very well be uh, that the glyphs went from being pictorial to taking on this geometric approach, because at that point, the Nazca were hurrying. They knew that they were struggling uh, and that they didn't really have time for a lot of artistic flourish. So they started focusing more on straighter lines Circles that could be drawn inside straight lines. They didn't have to really worry as much about mirroring images. It was more like, okay, we've been doing this. We're not getting the gods' attention. We're not gaining their favor. We have to do more, 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 and we don't have time for all of the squiggles. Let's hurry. So (laughs) which is just kind of sad to think about. But also an interesting approach to this question of uh, what these things are and why they're there.
0: In 2000, Rindell and his team made an interesting discovery. While archaeologists had noticed large man-made mounds of stones that they suspected were ceremonial altars at the end of the trapezoidal glyphs before, an excavation of one of them revealed fragments of a spondylus mussel seashell. This particular mussel is only found off the coast of Peru during El Nino events. This would have tied it to rainfall in the mines of the Nazca, so the shells found at some of these altar sites might have been offerings to the gods from the sea to encourage water.
1: And this theory of water worship and requests of the gods is also supported by the growing size of the geoglyphs in the later period of the ancient Nazca culture. As they grew more desperate, as I was talking about before, they would have wanted everyone in their villages and settlements to participate in the water rituals. So even uh, the spiral lines in some of the geometric glyphs if they were walking them the way these researchers are suggesting as part of their ritual it would have forced the worshipers to face one another over and over kind of like if you've ever been through like a long queue in an amusement park and you keep seeing the same people back and forth mm-hmm. uh and it it would have as they moved through their steps kind of reinforced their sense of community and potentially strengthened their resolve to plead for the gods for their favor and for the good of everyone like they were potentially this is one theory of course kind of reinforcing that idea that we all need to survive together, so we all need to be doing this.
0: By 500 to 600, the end of the Nazca was near. The water issue would have really been insurmountable at this point, and we know that by 650, the Nazca had been replaced by the Wari Empire, which had its roots in the central highlands.
1: Yeah, so since they weren't exclusively in this super dry area, they kind of had a, a stronger... Um, cultural presence that they, they could branch out, but they always had that kind of more hospitable environment to return to. And so while there isn't enough evidence to definitively prove any of these theories, the celestial theory or certainly not the alien landing strip theory, yeah, <laughs> or even these sort of pretty well thought out, uh, water and God related theories, uh, the current front runner among researchers, given what we've been able to uncover, does seem to be the religious ritual usage as a means to try to save the culture.
0: So, to sort of wrap it up, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, better known as UNESCO, put the Nazca geoglyphs on the World Heritage List in
1: 1994. And as I mentioned earlier, Maria Rika died in June of 1998 at the age of 95, four years after the lines were added to UNESCO's list. And there was talk at the time of her death that the lines should be named the Rijka lines, but it appears that idea never really gained any traction.
0: I would like to vote against that, please.
1: I think it would be too problematic for the historical record at this point.
0: Yeah, well, and I also think... I I sort of feel like the name of the culture that made them should should be preserved there and not replaced with some other person. Uh, There have also been new figures discovered through the years. So even though Maria Rico was very thorough and dedicated to the lines, there have been advances in photography that have revealed some glyphs that were previously really hard to make out.
1: Yeah, she mapped the vast majority of them, but they still do sometimes discover them. And while the Nazca lines are not the only such geoglyphs on earth, they are perhaps the most famous. Uh and even now there's a significant tourism trade built around carrying people out to the desert uh for aerial tours to see these massive landscape carvings from the past. Just kind of neat.
0: I would like to go. I would too. There's a lot of neat stuff in Peru. Yeah. <laughs>
1: There's some delicious food. Even beyond the food, there are all kinds (laughs) of... My tourism is based entirely around what I can eat in different places. Uh, But yeah, there's amazing...
0: Amazing archaeology and amazing, amazing ancient culture. Yeah. Preserved.
1: Yeah, and it is one of those things where, like I said at the top, I think most people have probably seen pictures of these and maybe even heard a little bit about them. But when you realize how much... Uh, research has been dedicated to them. I mean, even in doing this, there are so many archaeologists that we can't sort of step aside and talk about their individual work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we focused on kind of the big ones. but there's just people are really enthralled by them and uh, Maria Rica is not the only person who pretty much dedicated her entire uh, she dedicated her entire life. other people, many people dedicate their careers to them, right? So it's been uh, they're engaging. I like them. I do, too. I would love to walk them all.
0: Well, and the fact that so many people have dedicated their lives to trying to to puzzle out the mysteries of what these ancient sites were all about um, makes it seem really silly that occasionally, like, governments will come up with this kooky plan about what to do with nuclear waste and say, well, if we market it with these things that will deter people, like, okay, now in a thousand years, people are probably not going to be deterred. They're going to be walking around trying to figure out what that was about. Yeah,
1: well, and there is even a... Um, I thought about that a little bit while doing research. The big lizard glyph uh, actually has... It's bisected by a highway that was built... I think it was 1939 mm-hmm. that the that highway was worked on in Peru. And I wonder if, you know, years and years and years from now, someone will look and be like, why was the lizard cut in half? And it's like, oh, it was... really not part of the original plan but they won't know that. Nope. Or maybe they'll figure it out. Ah, Archaeology. It's so cool. Guess what? What? I also have listener mail. Please tell me what it says. This one I know made us both smile so big. Uh, it is from our listener, Angela. And she says, uh, I wanted to tell you first how much I enjoy your podcasts. I listen on my drive to and from work each day at the public library. Uh, and I love that you cover topics that have had a significant impact on our lives, but are just too narrow to be taught in a normal high school or college level history course. I am an amateur culinary historian is where I leaned forward a little bit while I was reading. <laughs> we got really excited. <laughs> so your recent episode on ice cream was a real treat for me. She quoted treats. Uh, after listening to it, I decided to cook three vintage ice cream recipes, vanilla, strawberry, and cornflake from books in my collection. You can see the results on my blog, and maybe try the recipes at home if you like. The vanilla and strawberry were out of this world, and the cornflake is... Interesting. <laughs> okay, I will go on record. The cornflake sounded the best to me.
0: Yeah, well, and we, um, we, we being me, uh, I put a link to that on our Facebook and Twitter to the cornflake one mm. in particular, just because I feel like John Harvey Kellogg is rolling over in his grave that someone made ice cream out, <laughs> out of, of cornflakes. out of his healthy. I know, <laughs> out of his thing that was all about not having dairy or sugar or meat or any of this other delicious stuff, and it was all about eating like very bland things.
1: But yeah. makes me super happy yeah, that now I, there's cornflake ice cream. I for sure want to try the cornflake ice cream recipe because it does sound really yummy to me.
0: Yeah? Mm. Well, and I think she said later in a, in a follow-up that it tastes sort of like frozen cornflakes.
1: Yeah. I, I uh, Reading her blog about it, I think she said, I don't have it in front of me, that it tasted more interesting before it froze. Mm-hmm. But when it froze, it lost some of its kind of spices and um, more individual flavors, and that's when it started to just taste like frozen cornflakes. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated. I'm in. I want to make it. When you find me passed out in diabetic shock from eating all the cornflake ice cream, you'll know what happened. I'll probably have a smile on my face.
0: I'll be really sad when that happens. I
1: hope that doesn't happen. We try to eat well most of the time so that we can indulge in the cornflake ice yeah. cream. So thank you Angela cuz you have inspired me in the kitchen. I love the idea of being a culinary historian. Yes. Well, and we occasionally get uh
0: all kinds of people who are doing blogs of historical recipes and things. And occasionally when we talk about what kind of video series we could do, we talk about some kind of historical cooking show. Yeah. All the food stuff makes us really happy, of
1: course, cuz food is
0: the life. Cuz food is great. We we've already been talking today about what's for lunch. We still have more episodes
1: to record. It's really all about the food here. Uh, so if you would like to write to us and share recipes or thoughts, you can do so at historypodcast@discovery.com. at discovery.com. You can also touch base with us on Twitter at Missed in History, on Facebook.com slash history class stuff, or on Tumblr at com. We also have a board on Pinterest, which includes, I pinned at one point, uh, Thomas Jefferson's vanilla ice cream recipe. Yum. Although I think it's hard to make out the details to actually use it because it's handwritten and it's quite an elderly piece. It's a photograph yes. of the original document. Uh, if you would like to learn a little bit about something we touched on in today's podcast, you can go to our website and search the word UNESCO and it will turn up what is a World Heritage Site. So you'll get more of a sense of how those are selected. Uh, and made into official sites. If you would like to research almost anything else your mind can think of, you can do so at our website. And that website is HowStuffWorks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.